read this evening in the first book of John, 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 through 14 only. The book of 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 through 14 where the Apostle writes these very memorable words. I write to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you have known the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Thus reads the living and the abiding word of our God. Now, for a number of Sunday evenings, you will be aware that we have been together in the lovely book of First John, discovering some of the great lessons and secrets of living the Christian life. And in particular, we have spent some time in the second chapter of this short but very profound book of 1 John on the question of Christian assurance. And John, in fact, has been applying to our lives three very particular and distinctive tests by which we may know whether or not we are Christians, whether we are truly and really in Christ, whether our state has changed from being one of darkness to becoming one of light in the Lord, one of disobedience to God, to becoming one of obedience to him, one of being out of fellowship with God to being in fellowship with him. And those three tests, you may remember that we have taken two Sunday evenings together to explore where knowing God implies obedience to his commands in verses 3 through 5a of chapter 2. And the second test was union with Christ implies likeness to him. The end of verse 5 through verse 6, so that if a Christian claims to be a follower of Christ, there should be some discernible likeness in his experience to the experience of Christ himself. And then last Sunday evening, we spent the whole of our time on the third of these three tests that show us whether or not we are truly and genuinely in Christ. And it was the test that indicates living in the light implies walking in love with one another. And we saw last Sunday evening in verses 7 through 11, the passage immediately preceding our subject this evening, that the command to love one another was both old and new. 
And there is a binding obligation upon all of us to live in brotherly love, to avoid the spirit of self-seeking and rivalry and getting one's own way, which are the very antithesis of Christian love. That we should be always self-sacrificing for the cause of Christ and in honor preferring one another above ourselves. Now we've arrived tonight in a new section of chapter 2 that is related to what we have been doing on these previous Lord's Day evenings. And you'll notice that in these three verses, there are only three verses before us this evening, John is doing something that is very wonderful and very instructive for us. Now, you remember that the whole purpose of this letter is to provide Christian men and women and young people with a sense of assurance. He has written, he has told us in chapter 1, in order that we may know that we have fellowship with God and fellowship with one another. In other words, the theme, in a sense, is that of knowing that we are assuredly in Christ, that we belong to him, that assurance of our salvation is possible. Yet you could say to me this evening that in the last five expositions through chapter two of this book, that that doesn't seem to be very much the theme at all. You might say to me, well, you could have fooled me. Because the message of John is a tough message. And continually he has drawn out tests of the Christian life that both humble us and in a sense alarm us. And we begin to say to ourselves, do we have these marks written in our lives and experiences that really show us that we are Christians? He said some very powerful things. That if we say and profess one thing, but if we live in another way, we are liars. That the truth does not abide in us. That we are walking in darkness. That we are even making God out to be a liar. And John has been very straight with us and very unequivocal. And he said that unless these changes have taken place, then certainly we have no right to claim a valid experience of God at all. Now, of course, his purpose was, as I have explained to you, to shake up those who were heretics in the church and to assure believers that in their case, the changes had taken place. But there is a danger that I can listen to all these th things, these three searching tests, for example, and say in my own heart, Lord, am I really there? And that's why this evening we need the beautiful balance that John brings in in these three lovely, unique verses in 12, 13, and 14. They're almost a digression where John is addressing the church that has been challenged and deeply perturbed perhaps by his message. 
and you see the beautiful balance of a loving Lord and of the Scriptures who comes to his people who have been perturbed and troubled and gives them a word of encouragement now. And so you see in these verses, there are, it seems, three groups of people that he is addressing in the church. And he is bringing to them the word of assurance that in their case, he is persuaded that their experience of God is valid and they have a right indeed to the name of Christian. Now, with this as background, I want you to look at these three groups that are mentioned within these three verses. Now, first of all, uh, there is the whole church. And I want you to look with me and to read with me verse 12 and the end of verse 13. Because you'll notice that in these verses, each of these three groups is addressed twice. Verse 12, I write to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. And then at the end of verse 13, I write to you, dear children, because you have known the Father. Now, it's important for us to realize that these three categories that are being addressed, children first and then young men and finally fathers, do not refer to physical age in the church. They refer to spiritual growth. Now, I'm saying this to you this evening in the full knowledge that Calvin, that master in many ways of the biblical and the reformed faith, does not take that position in his commentary upon this passage. And if you read him in his commentary upon the book of First John uh, at this point, you'll find that he refers John's teaching to those of physical age in the church, those that are literally children and young men and fathers. But I think it's clear beyond any measure of doubt that at this point we must differ from the master John Calvin himself. And there are a number of reasons that I won't go into this evening why I think that is very plain in these three verses. But what I do believe that John is doing here in this first grouping is addressing, beloved, and listen carefully, not children of physical age, not even children in the sense of being young in the faith, but he is addressing the whole church of God to which he writes. Now, why do I say this? Well, for this reason that the term dear children in verse 13, you notice, and at the end, and of course in verse 12 at the beginning, is a term of endearment as we have already had occasion to see. It's used on at least six other occasions in the letter where it always refers to the whole church. For instance, if you look with me uh, there at chapter 2, verse 1, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. To whom is, is John writing this? To the whole church. 
If you look in verse 18 of chapter 2, you have the identical phrase again. Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. And again, the address is to the whole church. If you look at verse 28 of the same chapter 2, you find the same and identical address. And now, dear children, continue in him. So it's clear beyond any measure of doubt that John is addressing, I suggest to you, the whole church of God. And what does he have to say for their encouragement? Well, it centers on two features. First of all, their sins have been forgiven. And secondly, you notice, they have come to know him who is the Father. Now, these are the two reasons that he gives, first in verse 12, and then you notice at the end of verse 13. Now, let's take these reasons and look at them. Now, why is he reminding the whole church that their sins have been forgiven on his, that is, Jesus' account? Well, you remember the purpose of this this little section that is almost a digression in John's argument. He is concerned for their spiritual state. He subjected them to all these various tests of the Christian life. If you profess one thing, but you are living a life that betokens something else, you are, he says, in deep danger and trouble. And he is concerned for their spiritual state to assure them at this point of the reality that they possess, beloved, the very foundational blessing of the new covenant. What is it? The forgiveness of their sins. Now do you realize what he is saying to them? He's saying, this is where you have begun with God. Do you remember the lovely word of Jeremiah in the Old Testament scriptures? In chapter 31, verses 31 through 33, where through Jeremiah he prophesies of the day when he will dispense with the old covenant and make a new covenant with God's people. And in that covenant, he will take his law and write it in his people's heart, and he will forgive all their sins. And it is the very foundational blessing of the new covenant to which John now refers. This is where your Christian experience begun, he says. I am centering on the thought of forgiveness because I have seen in you the evidence of a forgiven people. And it's very interesting, you notice, as you look at verse 12, that the tense is the perfect tense. Your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. And wherever that tense is used in New Testament Greek, it, it, it refers to past experience, the effect of which is still continuing into the present. 
So he is writing to encourage the whole church of God on the basis, we might say, of the given, the certainty that forgiveness has been experienced in the past by them, the effects of which are continuing on into their present Christian life. Now, how is he able to say this of them and to affirm this of them? Well, clearly, because he has seen in their lives the very evidences of the things he has mentioned in chapter 1 and chapter 2, that they are walking in the light, that they do love to obey the commandments of God, that they do seek fellowship with God and are living in fellowship with one another. And so he says, in effect, the experience of forgiveness back then I know was valid in your case because I am continuing to see the fruits of it in your lives. And all this, you notice, on account of his name, on the basis of his work, on the basis of his atonement, not on the basis that John is seeing them walk in light and in obedience to God's word, but on the basis of what Christ has accomplished for them. Otherwise, such signs can so easily be misconstrued. But you notice the second thing that John is able to use as a basis of encouragement to the whole church of God is that they know God as their Father. The end of verse 13, because you have known the Father. Now, as I've reminded you in this letter, wherever John uses the word know, he isn't referring to some intellectual experience of God, the God who is the ground of our being as some of our modern philosophers today delight to remind us of. Not the God of the philosophers at all, but this is a word that intimates in Scripture a deep and personal acquaintance and knowledge of another person. And they know God in that intimate way as their father with the instinct that a child has who comes into the presence of his father. And some of you children who are here this evening know what that means. Daddy arrives home from work and immediately your legs are active. You don't just sit there. You run to greet him and you call out. Your voice is active. Daddy, Daddy! because you know and I trust you love and you respect your earthly father. Now that is what John is saying here as he looks at the church to which he writes, distinguishing the true believers from the heretics and the Gnostics. He's saying to them, I know that this birthright is yours, that you have been adopted into the family of God, that you have the gracious privilege that has come to you by faith of knowing God intimately and personally as your father indeed. Now do you see what I'm saying to you, my friends, this evening? As John writes in these terms of endearment from the aged pastor 
to the beloved flock, all of the church of God. He is writing to them, my dear children, to assure them that they are indeed saved because the signs of the forgiveness of sins and the knowledge of the Father are in them. And he wants them, as we'll see in a moment, to progress in that position from being his dear children to becoming young men and indeed fathers in the faith. Now, isn't that comforting to us this evening? Your heart may have been searched as we have gone through this exposition. I hope it has been searched. Am I there, Lord, when I see so many inconsistencies in my life? And John comes to us and he says, My dear children, I see in you the undisputable evidences that I would expect to see in children of God whose experience is valid, your sins have been forgiven and you have come to know personally the God who is your heavenly Father. Now the second category you notice that he addresses is found at the end of uh, verse, the middle of verse 13, I should say, and the middle of verse 14. Look at them with me. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. And then again in verse 14, I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God lives in you and you have overcome the evil one. Now, do you notice that these are the lengthiest comments of all the three comments that John gives to the three categories that he is addressing? And he's referring here again, not to those of physical age in the church, the young men, the teenagers, those in their young manhood and womanhood, but he is referring to those in the church who are growing Christians, growing in the grace of Christ. They have not yet reached the full maturity of being fathers in the faith. But, you note, nevertheless, they have been strengthened to the point where their daily experience is that of overcoming the evil one. They are energetically engaged in the earnest business of living the Christian life. They're not playing games with God. And perhaps, too, this category John regards as the very first line of defense in the face of attack by the heretics in the face of the perils of Gnosticism, as we have seen. Now, do you notice that he says three things about these young men? Look at them with me. First, that they are strong in the Lord. I write to you, he says, because you have overcome the evil one. They are strong in the Lord. Now, this is the natural virtue, isn't it, of young manhood and young womanhood. And so in the spiritual life, these members of the church, both men and women, are being addressed, growing Christians. They are assured in that which they have already attained to. 
And again, the text in Greek is in the perfect tense, the continuing result of a past action. God has intervened in their life, has changed things. When they came to Christ, they were not like this. What were they like? Like us all. When we were yet without strength, Paul says of us in Romans 5, in due time, Christ died for us. But something happened. Something changed. Dramatic, wonderful, transforming. So that we have become strong as young men, as it were, in the Christian faith. And we are growing into maturity. And we are engaged in battles and conflicts of Christian living. We are no longer ruled and overruled by Satan. But we have grown in strength to the point where we are able to resist him in all his temptations and assaults upon us. So that the second thing quickly follows. The word of God says John, do you notice, lives in you, in verse 14. Now this is the reason why they are strong. John is reminding them of the source of their victory and their strength. And you notice, it's not in themselves. It's not in their own Christian experience, but they have read such and such a Christian book or grown up under such and such a ministry or attained to such and such a level of the Christian life. Not at all. But the source of their strength is that the word of God abides or lives in them. And it is a reminder in a very fitting way, I think, of the ministry of Jesus and the occasion of his temptation in the wilderness, when you remember, even in Jesus' case, as he was assaulted so severely by Satan, again and again he resorted to the word of God, Is it not written, said Jesus? Is it not written? Is it not written? In the scriptures you shall not tempt the Lord your God. And you see here, like the Lord Jesus, their master, are men and women in the Christian church, and even boys and girls who are growing Christians, who are learning to wield the sword of the Spirit. And beloved, only as we possess and as we wield effectively the sword of the Spirit do we have victory over Satan. Only then do we experience triumph over the world and the flesh and the devil. Only as we are able to say, Thy word, O Lord, have I hid in my heart, but I might not sin against Thee. Let me ask you, do you desire to know and apply the living word to the whole of your life? day by day, and hour by hour. This is the mark, John says, of being young men in the church, growing Christians. Now the third evidence, you notice that he adduces that they are young men, is that they have 
overcome the evil one. From the source of their strength, he moves to the results of their strength. And it is that they are victorious over the devil. But they have learned to fight in that battle that we are all engaged in and to fight from the position of being on the winning side. Now it's emphasized in verse 13 and again you notice in verse 14 it's emphasized twice because you have overcome the evil one. And you know this is what is being called for in the church. This is where we need the same emphasis here tonight in this congregation because what John is doing is this. He is showing us that we need to learn that the forgiveness of sins and having come to know the Father in the initial stages of conversion is not the sum of our Christian lives. But the aim of our Christian lives should be to go on and on and still further on to grow strong in Christ, so that we can stand and take our proper and biblical place in the Christian warfare. And that's why he is emphasizing twice over, they have overcome the evil one. And you know, if we need anything in the Christian church today, it's believers who know what that experience is, of taking, as Paul says to us in Ephesians 6, the whole armor of God unto us, that we may be able to withstand in the evil hour, and having done all, to stand, to hold our ground. Do you realize, in your Christian experience, that there's something beyond the forgiveness of sins, something beyond and in accompaniment with the knowledge of God as your heavenly Father, in which I trust you rejoice, to grow strong and take your proper and needed place in the Christian warfare. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. Now thirdly, the last category you notice that John addresses in this lovely, uh, encouraging portion of his letter is the fathers. Now look quickly with me at the beginning of verse 13 and the beginning of verse 14. Because we read there, I write to you fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. And verse 14, I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. Now you must notice immediately that John is addressing here not those who are young men in the church who are strong, but he is addressing those who are spiritually mature and ripe in Christ. And he does so in an identical way. Did you see that? That verse 12 is precisely the same as verse 14. 
And not only that, isn't it remarkable that it's almost identical with the way in which he addresses children? In the children's case, I write to you, because you have known the Father. And in the Father's case, he writes, I write to you because you have known him who is from the beginning. Now, what's the difference? Well, the difference is that there is a new element in what John says to the Father. You have known him who is from the beginning. And what I think John is emphasizing is this. The idea of God's unchanging faithfulness. That these men and women in the congregation who are ripe saints, who are mature because they have been tested and tried and found faithful, have come to a solidness of spiritual trust and of ripening wisdom in the Lord, which their long years of acquaintance with God has given them. You have known him who is from the beginning. And you see, he's referring to the result of a lifetime of spiritual experience in which they have known the Eternal One and proved his faithfulness in all the changing scenes of life. Believers grown to maturity, grown in the knowledge of God. Now, wasn't this the great ambition of the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3, where he says that my whole desire is to know him, to come to the excellency of the knowledge of God that is in Christ. And to whom does this refer in this passage in our congregations today? Well, I must say that it refers to very few, I think, in our congregations today. To those who have come in the ripeness and solidness of their experience to know him who has eternally been a deep experimental acquaintance of God, a ripeness of doctrinal soundness, a grasp thoroughly of Scripture and of Christ after years of consistent walking with him. Men and women, beloved, who are not shaken like reeds in the wind, but who are strong and stable and solid in Christ. Surely the writer to the Hebrews describes such in chapter 6 of his letter where he says of them that they are able not just to take the milk of the word but the strong meat of it, growing into the faith, able to resist and refute, to encourage and exhort the people of God in their walk day by day. And surely, in a sense, and this is purely an aside, it helps us in the selection of officers, doesn't it? Whom should you look for in the church to bear office before the people of God, representing them to him? Surely, if possible, such as those who are fathers in the faith. 
Now let me close, because our time is gone this evening. What are the lessons that we learn from this passage? Mark them well. Listen. There is such a thing as growth in grace, beloved. There is such a thing as progress in the Christian life. And if you and I cannot discern progress, we very probably are not in a position to discern it. Namely, we are not even in Christ. Are you striving after progress to grow from that elementary knowledge that is so wonderful of the forgiveness of your sins right through to the position where you stand as a father in the faith? Now that's the first lesson. The second lesson follows hard on its heels, and it is this, that progress, my dear friends, is gradual in the Christian life, as in a family. Isn't this beautiful that John puts this teaching in the context of a family? My dear children, you young men, you ripe fathers. And just as growth in a family is gradual, you do not expect a little child to have the knowledge and experience of a grown man. So in the church of God, the experience is gradual. And we will have those of every category amongst us which makes the work of ministry so difficult in a sense that the pastor must endeavor to feed those who are children and young men and have something also for those who are fathers in the faith. And we, beloved, should therefore be sensitive of this need and encourage one another according to the stage and progress we have reached to deal with people according to where they are. Now, the third lesson is this that the nature of Christian growth, you notice, is that it's growing in the knowledge of God. Do you notice that? The chief business of the Christian life, John says, is knowing him. Because you have known him, you have overcome the evil one, and so forth. And the last and final lesson as I finish is that the chief means of this growth is the word of God. Do you see how six times over John says, I write to you, I write to you, I write to you. And the purpose of this whole book of First John and all of Scripture is that we might grow in the fellowship of God, by coming to know the word of God. And so in finishing, isn't this a lovely balance he has brought to us, so gloriously put by him? Some are children, some are young men, some are fathers in the faith, but what John desires for all of us, beloved, is growth, movement, Progress. We do not need to be perfect to have assurance of salvation, but we do need to show progress in the Christian life that we may be assured. 
but we belong to the Lord. And what of you? Is there this genuine evidence of God's work in your life this evening? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're thankful for this passage. We're thankful for its loving exhortation to God's people and assurance that they do bear these indubitable marks that John is looking for as the evidence of genuine experience. Help us to learn from it. Help us to be encouraged by it. For Jesus' sake, amen.